and welcome to the Let's Do a Crime podcast. I'm Ryan, he, him. And I'm Mel, say them. I've worked in emergency services for over 10 years, including law enforcement, but not as a police officer. And I'm an artist. I work predominantly in ink and watercolor mediums, and I physically cannot tell the difference between vehicles. I can attest to that. I've, I've had a Subaru Outback wagon and a Toyota 4Runner sitting next to each other that one mouse could see over, one mouse could not see <laughs> over, and they could not tell which one was which. It's, they just look the same to me. I know that they're not, but they are. You know what I mean? The, the only reason why they can tell my cars apart right now is because one of them is white and purple. That's the only reason. I mean, yeah. <laughs> even though logically I know they're very different. Even though, yeah. even though one's a sports car and the other one's an SUV. Well, they look the same. Okay, anyway, <laughs> what are we talking about today, Ryan? Well, what do you know about undercover operations? I know that people sometimes do, like, deep undercover, where they put on, like, entire personalities, and, like, like for years they'll be working in, like, like, gangs and stuff. And I also know about a technique that we use in Canada that's, like, really which is what we're talking about today. We're talking about Mr. Big. Oh, my favorite. Wikipedia says that sometimes it's called the Canadian technique. I have never ca- heard it called that. I've that might only be, ever heard Mr. Big. But that might be because of in Canada. Yeah. So first, I'm, I'm going to explain a couple basic legal concepts. Mm-hmm. So like entrapment. This is one thing that like people don't really understand. So entrapment is when the police in some way coerce you or make you like force you to do a crime that you would not normally have done. Right. But if you if they're helping you do a crime or giving you the resources to a crime that you already want to do, that's not entrapment. So like if 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 you're going, ah, oh, I want to blow up this building, but I don't know how, and then me, undercover officer, is like, I know a guy, here's some dynamite. Not entrapment. You might not agree with that, but that's not entrapment. Oh, but if you were the one who was like Hey, you know what I think would be a really good idea? If you blew up this building and here's some dynamite. Yeah, that would, that, be, that would be entrapment because okay. because you were not likely to have done that crime without me spurring you to do it. Whereas the argument is that the other way of me just helping, you could have easily found some other way to do it and probably would have. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of different. That's a really, really basic rundown version, but like, if their cops are involved in their crime you're doing anyway, it's not entrapment. It's a power dynamic thing. Yeah. So I'm going to give a, a trigger warning here. Okay. So while we, we're not going to talk about it specifically or in depth, this episode does contain murder and a suicide mention as well as child death. Oh, nice. we're, we're not going into detail. We're only incidentally talking about them as we're mostly talking about the investigation tactic. Mm-hmm. But due to the nature of what this tactic is, it's mostly used in murder investigations. Right. So it's kind of hard to get around without talking about that. Right. That's honestly very fair, and thank you for the warning. Yeah. And so I'm going to start with another legal concept that mm-hmm. doesn't directly have to do with this, but is important in how to think about what the police are doing in these situations. Mm-hmm. There's a uh, case, R.V. Hebert, 1990. Now, I mentioned in a previous episode, but in Canada... Cases with the R as, as either the plaintiff or the defendant, that is the crown, a.k.a. the government. Right. R stands for Rex, which is just means, like, the the monarch. The king, like the T-Rex. So the, if the R is, in, in, is first, it means that the government is prosecuting. If the R is second, it means that, like, the government's being sued or something, right? Okay. 
So this is R.V. Hebert, so it's a case they were prosecuting. Mm. Uh, this 1990 case is a landmark, landmark Supreme Court decision in Canada. The cliff notes is, is that Neil Hebert was arrested for armed robbery, was given a standard charter caution, which is our version of, of what the states would call Miranda rights. Oh, right, the, the right to remain silent. Yeah, like ours is quite a bit different and pretty long-winded. Like, we have like five steps you have to go through to like properly charter someone. Mm -hmm. But um, You but, really need to make sure people know their rights. Oh, oh yeah, like it, it's, it's got, like ever since like uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was, was put in place, which the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as we know it, only came into effect in like 1987. Oh my god. It's fairly recent. That's too recent. But yeah. okay. But uh, as as time goes on, like the the, the standard charter cautions we've been using have been getting longer and longer. But it's for Americans or people familiar with American media, it's the same as Miranda rights. We just say different things. If you've seen CSI or NCIS or any of that, the, the right to remain silent. Yeah. Just, just think of that as yeah. we're going. Yeah, it's just phrased a bit differently. Yeah. Um as per as per normal, uh and he declined to make any statements. He was then put into a cell. An undercover officer is also put in the same cell, posing as another detainee, and through chit chat, uh, was able to get incriminating statements from Hebert. The court later ruled that these statements were not admissible as evidence, as once someone is in police custody, now that's important, in police custody, and has has decided to exercise the right to silence, they their their right to silence can't be circumvented due to trickery from the police. So. That this person was in police custody, had had been given his proper proper caution, had chosen not to make any statements, and the police tricked the statement out of him. Hmm. So the court held that that's a violation of his rights. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that assessment. So so that legal concept is important. You yeah you can trick a confession out of someone, but not once they're in police custody and not once they're Mirandized hmm. or or chartered in our case. Yeah. And what's the difference between like being in custody and being in the interrogation room? Is that is that different or is that the same? It depends. You you could be in an interrogation room without being in custody. So if if you're in custody, it means you've been arrested or otherwise detained and you can't leave. Okay. You can be called in to be interviewed by the police and be in an interrogation room. And this this is not legal advice, mm -hmm. and this is not going to apply everywhere. I don't know a lot everywhere. Yeah. But generally speaking, if you haven't been told you can't leave or or there, you have if you don't have a reason to think you're detained. So, for example, if you're pulled over at a traffic stop, you're detained. But if you're like invited to come in and speak to the police, you can just leave. Unless if if you can't leave, they'll tell you. In which case, they're supposed to start this process of like charter cautioning you and all that. Okay. But oh, but again, this is not legal advice. This may be different depending on the area in which you live in. So take this with just like a little with caution. Yeah, so the, a lot of people say don't talk to the police. I'm not going to say to do that because there's lots of reasons to talk to the police. Yeah. But if you think that you are being suspected of a crime, you should be getting legal advice. Oh, yes. Always ask for a lawyer. Yeah. You, you, you should, if you're, if you're talking to the police for a reason that you're, like, you initiated, like, you called for help or, or, like, you're legitimately a witness or something, like, fine, whatever. But, like, if you, if you're thinking that, like, this is seeming like you're maybe a suspect, or that that this isn't this doesn't feel right. Just get legal advice. Mm -hmm. In in Canada, we're actually required to provide access to free legal advice if they if you can't afford a lawyer. Um, 
most articles uh, say that Mr. Big Technique was pioneered in the 90s, mm-hmm. but most cases I could find are 1999 or later. I did, went digging through laws, I was trying to find, because the articles kind of implied that this was pioneered in the early 90s, right. and it may have been, but I couldn't find a case from that time. But, <laughs> it could be that the Mr. Big Technique just wasn't big at the time. Hey. <laughs> God, I'm sorry. <laughs> But in my digging, I did find a much earlier mention than 1999, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not what we think of Mr. Big today, but it's close, and it, it's kind of like the proto Mr. Big technique. Okay. This is the 1901 case oh. R. V. Todd. Oh, that's way earlier. So it it tripped me out because I was reading about like the King's Court and stuff like that, which mm-hmm. of course we have a King's Court again because the Queen just died. But like yeah. for my whole life, it's been the Queen's Court, so like seeing the King's Court was a bit of a trip. So. The uh, Winnipeg police hired David Yadow and William McBean to try to get a confession from Donald Todd regarding the murder of a John Gordon. Mm-hmm. So they pretended to be members of a very profitable ordina- uh, organized crime syndicate and offered to make Todd a member if he had done a series of crime to like roll with the crew. Right. And so him wanting to like make money, confess to this murder to them, and this this was actually held in court. Court held that this that it found this tactic distasteful, <laughs> but that the evidence was admissible as it did not violate any current rules. And uh, it also noted that McBean and Yudo were not peace officers; like they were civilians that were hired to help this investigation. Okay. I don't know what legal significance it would have had at that time. Uh, in the modern day, it, it it's kind of weird if if you're not if you don't have peace officer status and you're doing these kind of investigations. Generally speaking, if you're hired by the government to do something. In these investigations, you are a government agent and are held to pretty much the same rules as a peace officer, even if you're not one. Okay, and this would be different from, like, an informant. Yeah, an informant is, is usually a criminal who's been caught and is mm, okay. is giving information as, a, as a, like, a plea deal kind of thing. Okay, so you, you can't just be, like, a regular average person and be an informant. You, you can be, like, you know, you, you want an informant that's on the inside. Like, sometimes you'll have, like, whistleblowers, like someone who... Hmm. is not a criminal, but they're inside an organization, like a company, and has learned of something, they might go to the police, and the police might want them to stay in that position so they can get them more information. Um, it, it gets fuzzy there, but generally they wouldn't be considered an agent for the government because they're not actually working for the government. They're just helping with the investigation as a witness. Okay. But, like, if I were to hire you, like, to go to your school and find this information, yeah. you are now a government agent in the eyes of the court because... Like I'm paying you, okay. right? Uh, at this, but of course, this was 1901. The laws are way different at that time. Mm-hmm. So I actually don't know what legal significance they would have. That it seems like the court held the position that because they weren't peace officers, they weren't held to the same standards, even though they were being paid. So, which I find likely at the time, um, like like I said, the charter wasn't in place yet. There's lo- yeah. most of the legal protections we take it take for granted weren't in place yet. Well, also if you think about it. Like, Canada as a nation is still fairly new in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and this would have been under the British, like, yeah. empire. It's, also, it's possible that, at the time, there were just issues that, like, they hadn't had to think about dealing with, especially with, like, a new colonized area. Yeah. Well, and, and at the time, there was also stuff like, you know, you would have, like, say, the RCMP, there would only be one RCMP working in the area. Mm-hmm. If you needed help, he would, like, deputize people and bring them with him. Mm-hmm. It's a legal concept that still exists, but it's not used anymore. Yeah. 
like we still have it where like if I'm if I'm acting as as like a, a uniformed law enforcement member like a peace officer and someone's helping me and I'm directing them then they have some protection legally because they're operating like I'm telling them to do something. So they're like an extension of you. Yeah. So I'm I like they're still somewhat responsible for their actions, but like I'm more responsible in that case. Mm-hmm. At this time, you could full on just like be like like boys, bring your guns. We're gonna go get this guy. And it was that this is. This is where, like, a posse were coming. Mm-hmm. Like, they would call this a posse, where they would just gather, like, local men to go, like, arrest someone. Um, not a thing anymore. Probably a good thing. Probably. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, court held that this was, this was fine, and I can't find any more uses of it until, until we get into the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say that my first notable questionable use that I could find was regarding the murders of a German tourist, uh, Andrea Scherp, and... Uh, Bernard Gorky, or Gorik, I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced, uh, but this they were found murdered in 1983. Um, suspect Andy Rose was convicted in 1991, based entirely almost on a witness testimony. Um, the police learned of this witness via an informant that was in their drug dealing operation. Mm-hmm. So this this comes back to like, she's not a government agent because she wasn't like paid by the government. She was just a witness that came forward. Um, Later, they found that there's kind of some holes in her story, but, like, at the time, this is perhaps the only evidence they really had on this guy. Well, also, like, witness testimony is notoriously... Yeah, witness testimony is the is the weakest form of evidence. Yeah. It, it is used in a lot of criminal convictions, and it, 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 I will say witness testimony is very useful for a lot of things, but, like, I'm always a little bit dubious of, of a conviction based on only witness testimony. You know, witness testimony is ideally paired with a harder piece of evidence to contextualize that evidence. Yeah, well, especially since, like, it's been proven time and time again that your memory is faulty. No matter how good you think it is, you're going to forget something. There's always going to be some key detail that just isn't there. Also, people lie. There's and, that, too. And yeah. I'm not saying this witness was a liar, but I am going to say that this witness tried to sell her story to the media for $30,000 later. So, so she it, definitely at least tried to capitalize on it. Yeah, there's definitely some, some fuckery there. Mm-hmm. Uh, DNA analysis ended up overturning the conviction in 1998, along with the statement of the uh, with a statement from the ex-wife of another suspect, Vance Hill. So that. So wait, they arrested the wrong guy? Yeah, basically. Uh, basically, yeah. Uh, Hill had been arrested uh, not too long after the murders in the same area of unrelated charges, um, lodging by false pretenses, which is. Basically means like he he lied to get get housing somehow. I uh, couldn't find any details on that, but that, that was the charge. He was was American and went home to California. Um, he committed suicide in July 1985, so the investigation kind of into him kind of stopped there. Right. But before he died, he allegedly confessed the murders to his estranged wife, Lillian Hill, who apparently she told her nephew, and the nephew told the cops. Um, the story went that he gave those two a ride. It was he was. Yeah, it's actually harassing Sherp, who was uh, the woman, mm-hmm. and then shot and killed him after an altercation. Uh, these allegations were never proven or even tested in court because he was already dead. Right. Um, so where does Mr. Big come into this? Well, after Rose's conviction was overturned, police continued to attempt to get a new conviction on her. So they were still convinced that he was a guy. Um, even a- though DNA had... Based, like, it exonerated him? Well, the DNA, like, it didn't really exonerate him, it overturned the conviction. So, basically, like, his DNA was not found on either of the victims, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean he didn't do it, but, like, it does bring the whole case into question. Right. And for anyone who's not aware, 
you you don't win a case like this, like as the defendant, by proving you didn't do it. Usually, you can't prove you didn't do it. You win by proving that the the court, the, the government, the crown, has not established guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, like and, if there's basically any reasonable. That's reasonable doubt. So like yeah. like the, the, a reasonable person would look at that and be like, well, you know, am, even if you're like, yeah, it looks like he did it, but like there's problems here. And so because this testimony wasn't the best, there was another conflicting testimony and the DNA evidence didn't support the conviction. That's that's what overturned the conviction. So he wasn't exonerated. It's just that like the conviction was ruled to be an error. Um, and so they were trying, they continued trying to get a conviction on him. Uh, incidentally, I will note that the, that's the DNA evidence. Uh, there was no DNA evidence for Hill either, the the guy who oh, confessed. So, okay. but the way he tell the way he told it, it, it seemed like he probably didn't even have to touch them. Like he shot them from his truck. So right. that like that like I said, like the lack of DNA doesn't mean that either of them didn't do it. It just it just makes the case more flimsy. Mm -hmm. um, so after the conviction was overturned, we tried to get a new conviction. Uh, they started hanging out in the same bars as Rose, pretending to be gang members. So kind of like, uh, apparently he like was hanging around bars, like kind of hanging out with like gang member type people. So yeah. I'm not going to speculate on if he's a good person or not, but you know he was hanging out in these kind of circles. Um, uh, yeah, he kept interesting company. Yeah, so they were attempting to convince him to talk, um, and apparently while intoxicated, he did eventually confess. So. It, I don't know. People confess to all kinds of shit when they're drunk. Yeah. So the crown ended up dropping the case. So the, so this confession was never tested in court. Yeah. Um. The so dropping the case, basically, that doesn't mean that like they admitted he was right or whatever. Basically, the crown basically decided that um it wasn't worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna guess it's probably because they thought like okay this this confession is kind of flimsy. We don't have a lot of hard evidence, so we should probably just walk away from this. So, and as far as I can tell, they haven't picked up. They haven't tried again. So that that's the first like questionable use you can find. Did they ever find out what happened to those tourists? No, it's it's still listed as an unsolved murder. Oh. Yeah. That's really sad. Yeah. So uh, now we're gonna get into the RV Hart case. Right. Yeah, which is which is a pretty famous case about about um about this being misused specifically. Mm -hmm. That like there've been documentaries on it. Like this is this is kind of the big like. The Mr. Big has been used in Canadian court cases a lot. Like there's like 320 or something convictions based on it. Okay. Australia uses it. New Zealand uses it. Um, the United States doesn't use it. Like I wouldn't say it's banned, but just the way that their court rulings work, it's it's not easy to use it. So it's pretty much banned. Uh, the UK it also is similar. They they won't allow it. Right. Um, Germany will allow it, but only really specific strict conditions. Mm -hmm. So. Canada kind of use it a lot, and this is the first case that came up that like really brought the actions of the police into question when they were doing these kind of investigations. Right. So, in August of two thousand two, two year old twins Krista and Karen had died of drowning. Oh, um, I know this case. Yeah, in two thousand five, Nelson Hart was charged with their murder. He claimed he had a seizure and Krista fell off a wharf, and he could not swim, so he ran to get his wife, but left Karen behind. Uh, he claimed that she fell in the water after he left. For context, Hart was living on social assistance. Uh, he had a medical condition that did cause seizures. He only had grade four education, so his options were pretty limited. Uh, the police noted he was isolated, had very few friends, and pretty much only socialized with his wife. Mm -hmm. so that's that's kind of the picture of this man. 
right? In October of 2002, the Mr. Big operation began. Operators made contact with him and gave him some low-level work, which was just doing some deliveries, yeah. and they became friends with him. Uh, this slowly escalated into staged crimes, so nothing violent, but like credit card fraud, forging documents. So as far as I can tell, there were no like actual victims of these crimes. These are all like set up crimes for they him were, to do. They were staging an escalation. Yeah. To see like what he would be willing to do. Yeah, and he was led to believe that he was working with a large nationwide gang. Now I will note here that if they had tried to convict him for any of these crimes, that would be entrapped. Right. But they didn't ever pursue these, so they just didn't count. Mm. Um so meanwhile they were also paying him extremely well. So he was doing all these little crimes, they were paying extremely well, and like he had friends with these guys before. He was able to take trips and bring his wife on shopping sprees. So like they're living the high life now. Which before, like he was living on social assistance, right? Right. So in the spring of 2003, he met with the boss. This is where the Mr. Big thing comes from. So right, like, because you're meeting the big boss. Yeah, you're meeting the boss of this, this alleged gang. Uh, regarding joining the gang as a full member. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pressured him into, uh, regarding the drowning, and he confessed that he had pushed the girls into the water. This was recorded and used in court. Um, I, I read to somewhere that they, they also had him t- uh, take them to the wharf and like, reenact the crime mm-hmm. which is something that like a lot a lot of investigators like i'm not a detective i don't do murder investigations but i don't really understand the utility of that like i i, I actually i just don't um of the reenactment for the crime and um, maybe they they think that if they have somebody reenacting it they'll they'll be able to catch them retroactively in the act like i don't well, know well i think what they're tr- i think what they're trying to do is solidify uh by basically being like okay like if they can reenact it and it, it fits with our forensic re- like re- um reconstruction of the scene mm-hmm. then they probably did do it because they have like inside knowledge but in this case like a little girl falling off a dock or being pushed off doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out how that would work yeah right especially like a two-year-old yeah so so he, he admitted to it. They, they recorded it. Uh, in 2007, he was convicted of the murders. Um, he appealed it in 2012, and the Court of Appeal overturned it 2-1 and ordered a new trial. The court position was that uh, Hart be- uh, believed he had no chance but to, choice but to confess because the operatives had not given him a way out of the situation. Yeah. So, uh, therefore, his confession under arrest, even though he wasn't detained. So in this case, because the fact that he thought he was working for a big gang, uh, he, he it was obvious that they, they wanted to hear about about the this crime, um, and like him leaving the gang, like you don't get to leave gangs, no. right? Him leaving the gang or saying no to them, like a reasonable person would would feel in danger in that situation. Yeah. So the, and that's that was the justification for the the court saying that he was under duress. Well, I can also see how it could lead the court to believe that he was being taken advantage of as well yeah that, that was another thing that they noted um that that's because of uh, them befriending him and him being socially isolated yeah you know it, it also was playing on the emotional aspect of like his only friends right well, well, yeah because that's what i'm just thinking of is like if he went from being socially isolated not having a way to earn money like having a medical condition that makes it difficult for him to find work and then suddenly these people are providing him with companionship and money and a way for him to provide for himself and his wife like of course he's going to feel like he needs to to do something to prove himself like i'm not trying to defend him but i am saying that like 
if he didn't do it, I could see the mentality that would lead to a false confession. Yeah, well, the, the, the thing about these is that is that the, the guilt or innocence is irrelevant. It's about your rights at this point. Like, right. you, 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 you have a right not to be forced into a confession. And so, like, the traditional way we think about it is, like, if the police lock you in a room and, like, beat you up to get a confession. Obviously, that's, like, not a legit confession. I mean, this is just manipulative. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a different one. And so, like, this, you know, this, even though he, he didn't know the police were involved and hadn't been, like, like, so the, the police thinking was that, like, he could have just walked away from this. And, like, he legit could have. But the, the court ruling is that he didn't know that. Yeah. And that, that's the important part is if, if a reasonable person in his position wouldn't have believed that they could leave the situation, then it's under duress. Right. Right. I mean, like if I was in that situation, which like I wouldn't be, but if I was, um, I would not feel safe if I met the big boss yeah. and they were like, we want to make you a full member, but you got to show us how you killed somebody. Like I'd be so scared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the takeaway from this is, is that if you're going to use this kind of, this kind of tactic, a, you have to set it up in such a way that a reasonable person would feel they could leave the situation. Yeah. Um, so the Crown appealed, because they always do, mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court upheld the ruling in July 2014 unanimously. Oh, shit. Uh, they ruled the confession was inadmissible. Uh, the court also held that due to the implied threat of violence and intimidation, it constitutes an abuse of power, uh, of process by police and urged future court judges to view such cases with greater scrutiny. Mm. They also did mention, like, the, the relationships. Those were a little bit less important to this ruling, because, like, in this case, the you know, it was reasonable to think that, like, he was in danger uh, if he didn't play along. Yeah. But the court did note that the the money and, like, the, the freedom and the having friends were also important factors uh, for someone so isolated. Um, it's nice to know that they at least took into consideration the, like, social aspect of it. Again, I'm not saying that, like, I believe one way or the other whether or not he had done it. And I know that, like, with the legal system a person's rights change depending on kind of like the situation but i just i you very rarely hear about courts i guess having empathy for for people that they view as criminals yeah and also another important thing about this um is that there's a legal concept called the the fruit of the poison tree yeah. which is if something if something is, is deemed to be a rights violation yeah. every single piece of evidence you got because of that, is now also admissible, even if it was obtained legitimately. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, so, yeah. so like, a, a typical example is, like, if I pull you over, and I don't have grounds to pull you over, mm -hmm. and then uh, I find, like, that you're, you've got weed in the car, and you're not supposed to, and I search it and find, you know, explosives, and, you know, I find all the legal stuff. Because I didn't have grounds to pull you over... All of that evidence is inadmissible. Well, especially since weed is legal in Canada. So well, you can't you can't drive a high. And no, you if, can't if, drive if a high, but you can but, have weed. Okay, in the well, car. if you if you had open liquor in it, because okay, like, yeah. like like say if I pull you over for impaired driving, I can search a car for the yeah. liquor. And if I find other like if I find evidence of other crimes, that's mm -hmm. admissible because my search was legal, right? Mm -hmm. But if I pulled you over for no reason because I didn't like you and I didn't have a legit reason to pull you over. And then you had open liquor, yeah. and then I used it to search the car. Inadmissible because I didn't, because the initial rights violation um, renders all that evidence inadmissible. Mm -hmm. 
So this, this is a safeguard in the legal system to keep cops from doing one shitty thing and be like, well, we'll lose that piece of evidence, but we have all those other people. No, everything you get from that rights violation is inadmissible. Which makes sense. And because their court case, like, I don't know how strong their court case was without the confession. Yeah. But because everything else they had was based on confession, all inadmissible. Mm -hmm. So they never, I don't think they ever tried this again. Which, yeah. Fair yeah, enough. I mean, again, I don't know whether he did or did not. Like, like I know it sounds like I'm really trying to defend this guy, but we don't know. We don't have conclusive evidence one way or the other. Yeah, and like it doesn't really matter whether he he did it or not. The point is his rights are violated, mm -hmm. and that's one thing that like is people you know have a hard time wrapping their head around with with the the, the legal system is that. How you interact with with the courts and the government is is about your rights. Like, yeah, they're trying to trying to protect society by convicting you of crimes if like you've done it, but they have to do it in such a way your rights aren't being violated. Mm -hmm. And in this case, his rights were violated, so inadmissible. Right. Uh, our next case is United States versus Burns, two thousand one. Okay. So even though this is, is United States versus Burns, this is a Canadian court case. Okay. So. <laughs> And this is another one that, that's been made famous with like Netflix and all that crap. So, in 2004, Atif Rafay and Sebastian Burns were convicted of the murder of Rafay's family in Washington in 1994. Okay. Uh, what, cases, uh, what makes this case interesting is that, although it was a crime in the USA, the men were from West Vancouver and were in Canada at the time of the investigation. So, so the RCMP is basically helping out the police of the jurisdiction where the crime happened okay. by, inst instead of... Uh, having to find a way to investigate a crime in a foreign country where they have no ability, the RCMP investigated for them. Okay. So the confession was obtained by the RCMP using Mr. Biggs' thing. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's notable because in this case, United States versus Burns, is a Canadian court case because this case actually revolves around the extradition. Okay. So the, the murder case was, was heard in the States, right? Okay. But this case is about their extradition. Um, the case revolves um, around whether the Canada would extradite them because the death penalty was a possibility. Oh, right. And for people who don't know, Canada doesn't have the death penalty. Yeah. The, so, the most that we can give somebody is life, which I believe here is 25 years. Yeah, there, there's there's some rules about that. You can Someone can actually be in for, for life, life, but it's, it's kind of rare. It's very rare. Yeah. So Canada in general won't extradite if the death penalty is a possibility. There are situations where, like, they, they like crimes against humanity mm. would is one thing that like Canada would extradite even if the death penalty was on the table. Right. But in general, they won't. So uh, prosecutors in the states promised not to pursue a death penalty, and so the pair were extradited. Uh, partially because this conviction hinged heavily on the Mr. Big confession, three different innocence projects have supported Burns and Rafay. So they did get convicted, which is a bit weird because the states usually doesn't use that kind of tactic. Right. But I guess for whatever reason, like the information was admissible, um, probably because the fact it wasn't obtained in the United States, it wasn't obtained by Canadian enforcement. Also notable that that they were minors, at, I believe, at the time of the investigation, so they're the youngest people in it, Mr. Big. Right. Which would also, like, I bring in the question of, like, how safe they felt in those situations, right? So, yeah. So that has come up before. Um, well, the same thing with the previous case. Like taking into consideration their age and like their own social networks, it could be possible that these were the only adults that they had in their lives that they thought that they could rely on. Yeah, potentially. 
and but but three different innocence projects. So like an innocence project, for people don't know, is is an organization like a charitable organization that provides legal aid to people that they believe are wrongly convicted. I think a major documentary that people might know of when thinking of the innocence project is making a murderer. Yeah. So in in this case, three different innocent projects have supported them, which is notable because you know usually it'll just be one, but I guess yeah. it's three different ones that have like all believe that this this. And a lot, a large part of it is a Mr. Big sting. Right. Um, so I'm not going into a whole lot of details with this case because of the innocence project thing. I don't want to add more fuel to the fire of like, are they innocent? Are they not innocent? Uh, right. I, we don't know. When I was researching this, I actually found posts on Reddit where like a lot of bots were like uploading posts saying that they were guilty. So like, there's some weirdness around this case, and the media is like, as usual with these cases, is not handling it well. Well, I mean, it's very politicized. You either view it one way or the other. Yeah. But, and our last case we're going to talk about is one that is not a violation. It, and is, other than the fact that the murder involved, is a little bit funny how it went down. Is it the one from Australia? No, this one. This, oh, one, this one's it. also from Canada. Oh, okay. I got so excited. Yeah. So this is R.V. Kelly 2017. Okay. So oh, pretty recent. Yeah, pretty recent. So in 2009, Michael Earl Kelly was convicted of the murder of his wife, Judith Theobald. Uh, this case was before the Hart case. So this conviction happened before the Hart case, but because of the Hart ruling, it brought up enough grounds to appeal. So the, the thing with, with case law is that they build on each other. So because, right. because the Hart case was overturned, he was able to argue that, like, okay, my case is similar so yeah. mine should be reheard. Yeah, right? I can I, absolutely. I mean, if you're somebody in jail, regardless of whether you did it or not, if you see somebody else used a specific legal way to get out of a case similar to yours, like of course you're going to use it. Yeah. So this was not a Mr. Big tactic, but the tactics were close enough to apply this ruling. So okay. a similar sort of tactic was used, but it wasn't specifically a Mr. Big. Okay. So. Uh, during the investigation, an RCMP sergeant posed as an insurance investigator and claimed that there was life insurance policies Kelly was entitled to. He initially paid him $3,000. I gave him a check for $3,000 and said, hey, you know, imagine you get this. So there was an additional $5,000, uh, uh, $5,071,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, that was... Uh, this, $5, this is all bullshit. I mean, yeah, but still, Jesus, that's a large, if it was real, that's a large life insurance policy. Yeah, but he said, he said the money wasn't able to be released because Kelly was still a suspect. Now, I, I'd have life insurance. Mm -hmm. Life insurance usually does say that if there's foul play involved for many beneficiaries, they don't pay out. Right. Which is obvious because, like... It's to try to prevent murder. It's to try to prevent murder, right? So he's basically saying, like, hey, like... You're not convicted yet, but you're a suspect, so they're not going to pay out while you're still a suspect, so we have to figure this out somehow. So the undercover proposed that they pin it on a terminally ill person he knew. He's like, he's like, yeah, I got a buddy who will help us out. He's going to die, so you know he'll help help us get this money. But that they would need information to to give the scapegoat to convince the police that, that he, was a, he was the real murderer. So he thought that this person who represented an insurance company was going to help him commit insurance fraud? Well, it's because the in insurance guy was, was proposing this. Like, I think this is one of those things where it's like, hey, it's a lot of money. Like, you know, and I know you did it, but like, if we, if we can pin it on someone else, like, give me a cut and we'll, you know, you'll have your money, right? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so basically he's paying a dirty insurance guy. Yeah. 
So initially Kelly refused and, and said he didn't he hadn't done anything. Yeah. Um, eventually, di- though, he did uh, change his mind and he provided incriminating information. He, he provided like specific details of the crime scene that like he shouldn't know unless he had done it. Right. Right. So that's how he was convicted. Right, which does make sense. Like, yeah. how would you know unless you were there? Yeah. So he so he appealed it on the same grounds as the Park case, saying that like he was under duress and blah blah blah. But the appeal court rejected the appeal, saying that Kelly was essentially participating in insurance fraud. Yeah. And was not under any threat of violence. Was not under threat of any gang activity. And the police did not befriend him or attempt to exploit a vulnerability of his. Like you the, could argue financial vulnerability, but that's tenuous at best. Maybe like the like the the RCMP officer played this one right in this case because he instead of being being like you know I'm your buddy or like whatever he's like he's like I'm a really shady guy but I have access to the stuff that can help you. Right. So like anyone who was like corpus or anyone who's innocent would be disgusted by this and right. walk away. I do have a question. Yeah. How is this different from? what we were talking about earlier where it was like the police officer's idea versus like the suspect's idea. Because they weren't because they weren't convicting him of the insurance fraud. So if they went after him for the insurance fraud, mm. that would be entrapment because okay. they created the situation. Okay. But right? they were just kind of using the situation. Yeah. yeah. So the reason why he got convicted because he got convicted of the murder. Right. The reason why he got convicted is because in the process of establishing this insurance fraud, he provided information that incriminated him for the murder. And so that that's what makes us not entrapment because they never went after the insurance fraud because there was like there was no insurance fraud even like there right, wasn't actually was fraud yeah it was all bullshit but because of the fact that he was able to provide information that he shouldn't have had like, uh-huh. and and the, the, again the court held that he was coerced into it like he had no reason to think he was in danger like you know if if his if his wife legit had just died, this insurance guy's like fucking with them. Like, you think he would go to the police and be like, "Hey, this guy's trying to commit insurance fraud." Yeah, like if someone that I loved had like died, and then some insurance guy was like, "Listen, I know you killed them, but like, could you pin it on this?" I'd be so pissed. Yeah, and so and of course he had the information that they needed, which yeah. incriminated him. So the court upheld his conviction mm-hmm. because, like, yeah, fuck you, you're. <laughs> you're it's You're definitive guilty. proof that you did actually do this. So th- this is this is a, uh, an example of a tactic being applied well. Right. Um, but this wasn't a Mr. Big. Like, the, I have problems with Mr. Big as most people do because of the fact that, like, part of it is making you think you're part of a criminal organization. Yeah, and also, like, there's the whole power dynamic where, like, you, the suspect, are talking to somebody that you perceive to be, like, in a position of power above you that could provide you with, like resources and like finances yeah so i don't think that there's any any situation where you can apply mr big in a way that is neutral and isn't at least a little bit coercive but like of course this here wasn't the mr big it was just it's effectively just a normal sting yeah where it was kind of like bait switch the crimes because like Obviously, if you're if you're doing this, most people would think that like the insurance fraud is a yeah, crime. Yeah, but... bait you with insurance fraud, then we're gonna switch out murder. Yeah. <laughs> so the Mr. Big tactic is still acceptable for use in Canada to this day. Courts are a little bit more skeptical of it, which mm-hmm. is probably a good thing. Well, I mean, you have to be careful with how it's applied because, like, it's a tactic that I think can very easily be used to get false confessions. Yeah, and. 
and any confession that's done under duress, like even if it's legitimate, again, you're kind of screwing the rest of the investigation because then anything you get from that yeah. is going to be tainted. Yeah, like if you get someone to confess and they're like under duress, but then you find like the murder weapon, like in their house or whatever, like yeah, that that would be invisible, and you don't want that. Yeah. So I'm not a big fan of the tactic. Um, like I said, Australia used it. I, I don't have the court case in front of me, but I, I recall the first time it being used, the judge was very critical of it, saying that, like, we imported the stupid tactic from Canada. But, again, it didn't violate any of the rules of the court, so they kind of had to allow it to continue. I will say, I, I don't remember where we watched this, but I remember watching maybe a Forensic Files episode or documentary on the case in Australia, and I feel so bad because I could not take it seriously because Australian people, their accents, it's so like ingrained in me to be like friendly. Yeah. That when I heard somebody like pretending to be like a mob boss, I just didn't believe it. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Australia. If anyone from Australia is listening, my bad. Okay, and so that's that's the Mr. Big tactic. Don't uh don't confess the crimes. Don't commit crimes, but yep. especially don't. No. If you commit a crime, confess to it. Because maybe you'll get a later sentence. Yeah, com- if, you, if you commit a crime, confess to it. But, like, if you didn't commit a crime and, like, all of a sudden now criminals are hanging around you, maybe don't. Yeah. Maybe, maybe call the police. Yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. Maybe they are a police, but if, just don't talk to them. Yeah, listen. If you think that you're being suspected of a crime and then suddenly, like, low-level gang members are trying to talk you up, don't engage call the police, be like, hey guys, I don't know if this is you or not, but like, stop. Yeah, just run. Yeah, just run. Okay, bye! Okay, bye!